1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Associate Professor Jane Ferguson from the School of Culture, History and Language at the Australian National University. Jane is the author of Repossessing Shanland, Myanmar, Thailand and the Nation State Deferred, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2021. Repossessing Shanland tracks the experience of the Shan people from the time that the Union of Burma was established in 1947, when they were promised an independent state, and the present, offering deeply grounded insights into the lives and thinking of this borderlands people. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Jane, I'd like to start by asking you what brought you to write this book.
0: Well, it's a long journey over. Two decades, I suppose, because prior to beginning my master's and PhD in Southeast Asian history and anthropology, I had worked for a media production NGO in Northern Thailand called Images Asia and had made trips to these border areas and getting to know the struggles firsthand from their participants. And later studying Southeast Asian history and anthropology, I started to think more analytically more theoretically about what does it mean to have a Land? How long has this fight been going on? And also, how is it embedded in history? What keeps this ongoing struggle going since 1958? So these were kind of the big questions that I was asking about it. And so the book itself comes partially from the two and a half years of fieldwork that I did between 2004 and 2007. But also after finishing the dissertation in 2008, making twice yearly visits to Southeast Asia to update the information, but also to consider the struggle, the ongoing struggle in more longitudinal terms across the changing politics in both Thailand as well as Myanmar and Shanland. So it's an interrelated project from the very beginning.
1: You start the book with the tale of the great Tiger King and his kingdom. Can you explain who this was and why he's important to your story?
0: Yes. So, Zhao Se Kanfa, the heavenly Tiger King, the great Tiger King, is the mythical king that is said to have united the warring statelets of Shanland across uh, Southeast Asia. Within Theravadan cosmologies, nation-states will have this mythical figure, the sort of the the Shan version of the Genghis Khan, that there had been a period of decline, and Shan vassal states were becoming subsumed by other empires. And with Dausa Kanfa, he had a mythical upbringing. He was partially raised by tigers. Uh, His name actually means heavenly tiger scratches. He was in a childhood tussle with tigers. And with his strength and with his prowess and charisma, managed to unite all of these Shan states to create the equivalent of a Shan empire. Again, as the national narrative goes, but every major Theravadan state seems to have an important empire in history that they point to as exemplar of the greatness of history and to project that onto a political future for mainland Southeast Asia.
1: So for contemporary people in Shanland, how is he invoked? Well, he's on
0: every nationalist-style comic books, books, readings for children. The Shan Nation Building, State Building Project also is predicated on having a Shan language with a Shan written script and Shan educators, literati, Drafted school textbooks in the Shan script from year one to year five at around the time of the Second World War. And so children read about the mythical history of Zhao Kanfa. And then there's other kinds of popular media, like popular songs or images on t-shirts or images on stickers and comic books. So Again, this figure is seen as the exemplary hero for the Shan people. He represents the glorious Shan past, and it has this power of suggestion that hopefully in the future, there'll be another Zhaosu Kanfa who can unite the Shan and beat back the Burmese army to recapture this Shan land. And
1: who are the Shan? Where do they live exactly? And why is their story important?
0: First of all, across Southeast Asia, there's approximately 5 million people who identify as Shan today. So they're the largest ethnic nationality group in Myanmar after the Bama. And there are numerous Shan in Thailand, as well as Yunnan province in China. And also Shan is the Burmese spelling or the Burmese appropriation of Sayam, so they're considered to be ethnically and linguistically in the same family as Thai and Lao. So they're quite a sizable group. And historically, Shan princes had had power for hundreds of years in the uplands of it's known as the Shan Plateau, but geographically the largest state in the Union of Burma. It's located in the northeast of Myanmar.
1: And as you've just told us, Shan is an adaptation of the pronunciation of Siam, which of course is a term used for Thailand, and also that Shan are living in Thailand itself. How do they distinguish themselves from, from Thai people and how important is it or not that they're located in the physical territory of Shanland versus Thailand, for example?
0: Right. So that's an important aspect of what does it mean to be Shan in terms of in which nation state do you have the privileges of citizenship? And then also in relation to the ethnic majority in those nation states, looking at the five countries of mainland Southeast Asia, each of them is an ethnonym. In other words, it's an ethnic name for the majority group in each country. So what does it mean to be a minority, you don't just interrogate the minority, you have to interrogate the majority as well in that relationship. So Shan are considered to be a different family of languages from Bama, which uh, is Tibeto-Burman family of languages. And so they're considered to be very culturally distinct in terms of that language family aspect. But through hundreds of years of cultural contact, the Shan that are located in the Shan state of Myanmar, also speak Burmese. They're citizens of Myanmar. Many of them went to Burmese government schools. Some went to Burmese universities, University of Mandalay, Yangon University, whereas those Shan people who were born on the Thai side of the border for many generations, again, these borders were thrown down because of colonialism, and the borders weren't fully settled until the middle of the 20th century. So, Those who for generations have been on Thai side, they might think of themselves as Shan, but they'll be bilingual in Shan and Thai, or Shan trilingual in Shan, northern Thai and Thai, and they won't have that background in Myanmar. And for the Shan that are born on the Thai side of the border, many of them might not have as militant of political identity because they haven't been involved in the same kind of insurgency against Myanmar. Many have become very much assimilated to Thai cultural politics, to Thai ethno-nationalism. So again, to say that what makes them Shan, it also has to do with this social positioning. Where did they grow up? And what's their political stance in relation to the majority nation-state?
1: And of course, when we talk about borderlands, many of these questions are really salient in many contexts in the Southeast Asian region. But speaking of borderlands a little more, our listeners may be aware of the vast numbers of people from Myanmar ethnic minorities who find their way into the Thai refugee camps. But you point out in the book that the Thai government doesn't classify Shan people as being displaced from war, and so doesn't allow them into these camps. Why is this, and what implications does it have for Shan people who make their way across that border?
0: Yes, that's a very complex and very much a catch-22 for ethnic proximity and especially for Shan people in Thailand. This perception of ethnic closeness and what does ethnic difference mean when Thailand organizes refugee camps for people fleeing Myanmar because of the war, ongoing war, that the refugee camps are designated according to the ethnicity Of the refugees themselves. And Thailand is not signatory to the UN Convention on Refugees. So they get to organize their classification system for border crossers up to kind of the bureaucratic whim of the Thai state. And so while Bama, Karen, Kareni, Mon, etc., etc., these different ethnic groups From Myanmar, those refugees fleeing the war and crossing the border, many of them do have access to specific legal designated camps, which means that by registering within these refugee camps, they are entitled to UNHCR assistance and potential resettlement in a third country, such as France or Australia or the United States or Canada. But Sean, because of this bureaucratic fiat on the part of the Thai government, the Thai government does not classify Shan people fleeing war as refugees. And again, refugee as a bureaucratic designation by the Thai state. The Thai state does issue certain kinds of migrant ID cards, but it makes the Shan people subjects of the state, not refugees. And the path to citizenship is often murky and impossible for many. But why the Thai government would choose not to allow Shan people for sheer reason of their ethnicity. One of the arguments that agents of the Thai state have put forward is that not all Shan people are refugees. Many of them are economic migrants. And again, why would ethnicity alone be the determinant of whether somebody is a refugee or an economic migrant? And then the other argument that they put forward is that Because the Shan are perceived to have linguistic and cultural similarity to the Thais, that Shan people fleeing war find it easier to get by and easier to assimilate to Thai culture than their Bama or Karen counterparts. So they don't have access to refugee camps, to these facilities, and they have no choice but to engage in undocumented labor in order to survive in Thailand.
1: So that gives us a little bit of a hint of how they live if they're living on the Thai side of the border. But recent arrivals from Shanlin, could you paint us a bit more of a picture of what daily life would look like for them on the Thai side of the border?
0: Yeah, sure. There are many long-term settled uh, Shan people on the Thai side of the border The particular area where I did my fieldwork, it was a former Shan United Revolutionary Army Soldier Town, or SURA. So the majority of my interlocutors when I was doing fieldwork were participants in this political movement. Many of them had retired or that was their families or affiliates. So in order to survive on the Thai side of the border, many would engage in, they call it cash-in-hand type labor, searching in the morning, eating in the evening, so day wage labor. And for Shan people living in the cities, many would migrate to Chiang Mai or Bangkok and search out work as domestics. Disproportionately in northern Thailand, the construction workers tend to be Shan. I mean, there's anywhere between 200,000 and 300,000 Shan migrants in northern Thailand alone. And the dirty, dangerous, difficult jobs that Thai citizens would not do for low wages. Part of the predicament is that as subjects of the state, but not citizens of the state, often they end up being forced to work for below minimum wage and in dangerous conditions.
1: And, of course, this is a common experience with other border crosses of different ethnicities. But does the fact that the Shan people can pass more easily protect them from some level of discrimination from the state, or are they also targeted by police and other agents of the state?
0: Well, this idea that they would pass more easily is more of an ideology. And in practice, like, for example, for mainstream Thais who know that, for example, that the Shan would be their linguistic cousins would say, oh, yes, you know, Shan, it's very similar to Thai. But they don't actually speak Shan themselves when they make that assertion. It's actually a component of Thai ethno-nationalism and Thai chauvinism that seeks to absorb the Shan and the Lao or people from other regions in Thailand or people who speak the similar language family. It's often the minority who is much more sensitive to the differences between their languages than the majority.
1: Hmm, that's a really interesting point. And, of course, language is a very strong theme in your book. You mentioned it already. We might come back to it later. But in the meantime, I want to take a step back into history because, of course, your book's not just an anthropology of the present. It's also very much a historical account. And in it you identify three fundamentally different drivers of nationalism. And we've just been speaking about Thai ethnic nationalism in Myanmar, Thailand and Shan as they emerge from the high colonial period. Can you explain what these are and why they're important in your contemporary story?
0: Yes. So thinking about these three nation states and thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen of those nation states? You know, how did nationalism develop in Myanmar, Thailand and Shanland? In some ways, they're very much comparable prior to colonialism. So prior to if you go back two or, or three hundred years before Eric Hobsbawm has projected that the modern nation emerged, that they were Theravada kingdoms with a very similar ritual language or, as I call it, a grammar of statecraft. So very status conscious. People weren't blind to ethnic or cultural difference, but ethnic or cultural difference did not qualify for being a citizen or thinking of oneself as a ethno-national imagined communities to borrow from Benedict Anderson's influential book and his particular term. But looking at how Burmese or Myanmar, Thai and Shan nationalism and sense of racial community developed, it's very different. So because of British colonialism and the annexation of the province of Burma as a province of British India, that the Burmese king was entirely removed. So Burmese ethno-nationalism developed as an anti-colonial project, so in contrast to a European oppressor. And there was a different understanding of race and ethnicity, which came partially as a result of the British colonial census and the way that they decided to categorize ethnic difference according to language and to name that race and tribe according to language. So you've got this categorization scheme that was developed as a result of British colonial state building, as it were. Whereas going next door to Thailand, going to Siam... Siamese, Thai ethno-nationalism did not develop in response to colonialism per se, because Thailand has this unique qualification of being the only uh, nation state in Southeast Asia not to have been directly colonized. But Thai ethno-nationalism, Thai nationalism formed as an elite top-down project of the kings of Thailand to make use of the idea of, well, the Buddhist idea of chat as rebirth, borrowed from jati, the Sanskrit idea of birth or station in life, but changing that to become an imperial project in itself, the imperial domination of the Thais by the Thai elites, as it were. So they sought to absorb more of the kingdom as Thai and erase difference rather than categorize it as the British had done. And the Shan offer a very interesting contrast because on the one hand, they were subject to this, and I call it an Anschluss, and in some ways it is, this subject of ideological absorption by the Thais because they're seen as being ethnically similar, but also because the British allowed the Shan princes to maintain semi-autonomous control over their small fiefdoms as they were part of the frontier areas of British Burma, whereas the Burmese were fully colonized in the sense that their monarchs were removed and replaced by the colonial state. So because the Shan monarchs were able to maintain this political authority and cultural authority, they were hemmed in. They, In some ways, they later became subject to Burmese understandings of ethno nationalism as the Shan state became incorporated to the Union of Burma at independence. And on the other hand, as seen as ethnic and linguistic cousins of the Thais, they Uh, wanted to resist and push back against that kind of absorption. So in some ways, they were trapped in the middle between these two larger nation states, but still sought to carve out their own kind of ethnic autonomy from that.
1: In my introduction, I mentioned that in 1947, when the Union of Burma was established, the Shan people were promised an independent state. Why didn't that come around about and, or how did, it, how did it play out in that early post-colonial period?
0: Yes, and that's a really important bureaucratic development for the independence and for the Cold War trajectory of Shanland in relation to the Union of Burma. So first of all, in 1947, during independence negotiations with the British, so the General Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, had been in conversation with Clement Attlee and the Shan princes had sent a telegram to London to say that these Burmese politicians do not represent our interests. As I mentioned earlier, the Shan princes were part of the frontier areas to ministerial Burma, so they had their semi-autonomy and they wanted to maintain their modicum of political power. They did not want to be subsumed by the Burmese. And also, the Burmese, as part of their ethno nationalism, had wanted independence. So, as part of the negotiations in London, the British had forced the Bama, the Burmese politicians, to show evidence of cooperation with the frontier areas as a condition of independence. So, fast forwarding to February of 1947, is the famous Banglong Agreement, in which Aung San met with Chin, Kaya, Kachin, and Shan politicians and encouraged them to sign this agreement, which meant that the Shan politicians would join the Union of Burma at independence. So projected independence was 1948, but with a caveat that following 10 years' initial membership that they could have a plebiscite and if they chose to do so, withdraw from the newly formed Union of Burma. And it was also written in as chapter 10 to the 1947 constitution, which was passed in July of 1947. So when Burma got independence in January of 1948, these Shan politicians had this legislated on paper title deed that they would be allowed to have independence from the Union of Burma following 10 years initial membership. I mean, it's the equivalent of, you know, Scotland being given automatic provision to be allowed to withdraw from the UK. So
1: why didn't it happen? What what happened in the Cold War period that meant that this didn't come about?
0: Yes, uh, I would say a, a perfect storm of Cold War geopolitics happened. So following Independence in 1948, there was another group, the Karen, that did not have full recognition or full autonomy. And less than a year after independence, there were already insurgency movements, separatist movements amongst the Karen. Also at independence, the Communist Party of Burma was one of the largest political groups and also bore arms. And there was an insurrection in 1948. In 1949, with Mao coming to power and defeating the Chinese nationalist troops of the Kuomintang, there was a retreat of thousands of Kuomintang troops across the border from Yunnan and into Northeast Shan State, and they started to set up a counterinsurgency. With all of this, and again, you think of a national government as having sovereignty and having a monopoly on the policing of its territory, the national government of the newly formed Union of Burma, you know, had very little, you know, territorial control over the nation. And also the Kuomintang, the forces of the CPB and the Kuomintang, you're starting to have the seeds of ethnic rebellion and ethnic separatism going on. Again, this is the longest running civil war in in modern history, so I'm trying to summarize a little bit here. But In any case, the Kuomintang, because of Cold War geopolitics, also received support from the Thai government, the U.S. via the CIA. And as part of that, they allowed the Kuomintang to engage in opium trafficking and then later the installation of heroin refineries along the Thai Shan state border. They brought in chemists from the Shu Xiao Hong Kong mafia in order to set up these heroin factories and continue to engage in heroin manufacture to support their counterinsurgency. And as part of that, with all of this ongoing violence and militarism happening within the territory of the Union of Burma, you start to have an incredible expansion of the Burmese Tatmadaw or the army. And so, because of this expansion of the military, the prospect for Shan independence through legal means is increasingly diminished. I mean, the Burmese army, as a result of the Kuomintang incursion, used that as an excuse to establish military law, martial law in Shan state, sending more and more Bamar troops to basically occupy Shan land and the prospect for independence is less and less. And then later, by 1959, the central government buys out a number of the Shan princes. And in 1962, you have Ne Win's military coup, which obliterates any prospect of peaceful liberation of Shan land or separation through peaceful means. Mm
1: -hmm. And drugs are a recurring theme, aren't they? Because in the 80s and 90s, Shanland received, achieved international notoriety for its role in the opium trade. Uh, can you talk to us through this sort of early post-Cold War period and the role that drugs played in it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for centuries, there had been um, small-scale opium cultivation, but especially because of conflict. And the ramping up of the conflict throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, opium became the most valuable commodity in the uplands. And the Kuomintang would compel and actually force farmers to make opium growing quotas, as did some of the Shan insurgencies as well. And just to summarize, by the 1970s, there were upwards of 40 different types of militia operating in the Shan state alone. And in this complex tapestry, there were ethnic separatist groups. There was the Kuomintang. There was the Communist Party of Burma. There were Gakweye home guard militias, or essentially like vigilantes who received permission to traffic drugs and wouldn't get in trouble with the government so long as they were fighting against the government's enemies. And there were the troops of the nation's army, the Tatmadaw, as well. And how opium becomes so important and the production continues to increase has to do with, first of all, global demand for it. By the latter half of the 1960s, you have hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops alienated and with dollars in their pockets because of the war in Vietnam and then also r &R in Thailand. So up to 20% of U.S. troops became addicted to heroin. And it was heroin that was being grown in both the north of Thailand and in Shan State. And as the insurgencies continued, as the fights continued, that you know, there was often the question raised about, for example, uh, Meng Army Commander Kunsa, probably the most infamous Shan in history. Was he fighting for ethnic independence to liberate Shan land, or was he seeking to line his pockets from profits, from heroin? Uh, by the early 1990s, for those of us over 40, who uh, remember grunge music and the whole aesthetic of heroin chic. That was heroin that was grown in Shan State. At one point, the Shan State was the number one exporter
1: of heroin to the rest of the world. And, of course, Kunsa surrendered to the Myanmar government in 1996. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how this affected the soldiers in the Shan United Revolutionary Army, but also the people of Shanland more broadly.
0: Yeah, especially because I was interviewing people in the early 2000s about these historic developments. And because Sura, Ashan United Revolutionary Army, was founded by a different commander, Gonzong, in the late 1960s, and the SURA was one of the, well, they were involved in the cross border black market trade as well. This also has to do with the military coup of Ne Win and the Burmese way to socialism, which basically nationalized the economy and sought to cut it off from the outside world. It fueled the fire of the borderlands insurgencies because then they could profit and tax the cross-border trade. So everyday consumer goods coming in from Thailand. And things going the other direction tended to be drugs. So drugs going out and consumer goods going in, all being taxed by those who could control the militias along the borders. But thinking about Kun Sa, he was able to increase his forces, the Shan United Army. He also had brokered many deals with the Thai army as well. And this is another aspect of thinking about what does it mean to be Shan, that It was a Cold War geopolitical strategy to brand their army as Shan, as a stance that was nationalist, that appealed to Thai nationalism and exhibited this kind of surface compatibility um, that if they named the army as being Shan, then they would be seen as being anti-communist. Again, how deep these roots really, really uh, were embedded in the movement is another question because um, the armies were constantly recruiting, forcibly recruiting people of any ethnic nationality as they were expanding in the Shan state.
1: That's a really interesting point that, um, in fact, ethnicity uh, was not actually a defining feature of who got to be in the army.
0: Right. And this is something that I've learned from continued visits, both to Burma, Shan State, and then also to northern Thailand this past December, when I visited an Aka village and a Lahu village, and another time I visited a Tara'ang or Ta'ang village, I'd be talking to the village headman and ask, does anybody speak Burmese or Shan, just you know, making conversation. And I met an older man in his early 60s, and he had a full set of Shan warrior tattoos. And he told me his whole history of how he uh, was in a Ta'ang household, and there were different armies coming through all the time. And the Shan army had demanded of his family to have one soldier And so the family was concerned for his safety and thought the only way that he could live and that the Shan army would protect them was to send him to join the army. So people fighting for the nation uh, were not necessarily doing so out of ideological commitment, especially for non-Shan's and especially for non-elite shan's. You know, the actual foot soldiers of most so-called national armies are not necessarily comprised by the ideologically committed. It's often people that most desperately need a job or have
1: no other options. Hmm. So returning to nineteen ninety six and the surrender of Kunsa, you've talked about it how It affected the soldiers. Did it have any impact on people more generally in Shanland?
0: Yes. It was a huge watershed event because Kunsa had operated and been at the head of, we could consider it an embryo Shanland in the sense that the Mungtai army commanded by Kunsa operated factories, had schools, and had sovereignty over this swath of territory to the west of the Salween River, all the way to the Thai border. And just for a measure of how vast that territory was, they operated 209 schools that taught the Shan curriculum. So people in this area were receiving, you know, what we could consider them to be, you know, full benefits of a state. You know, they had hospitals, they had schools, and not to say that they were magnificent and modern, but, you know, they, they did have these infrastructures of the state. and. When Kunsa surrendered, then the Myanmar army, the Tatmadaw, uh, was able to come in and conquer this territory. And they also moved another insurgent group that was fighting on their behalf, a ceasefire group, the United Wa State Army, bases of the United Wa State Army down from the north of Shan State to the areas formerly occupied by the Shan insurgency. And with this turmoil, approximately 300,000 people were displaced and there was a huge wave of refugees crossing the border into Thailand as a result of this massive displacement. I'd like to
1: step back now and discuss some more more of the theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. First, in terms of methodology, you lived for two years with a community of former soldiers, as you've said. What was that experience like?
0: Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, uh, village-based fieldwork is considered the hallmark of anthropological research and participant observation. Uh, part of it, I lived with a family of SURA veterans, including a woman, Seng Kem, in the book that she had joined the SURA. She grew up in Mengpan, one of the Shan principalities that borders Mehongsan province. And as a young teen, Her journey of being a woman soldier in SURA. And so, living in her household, her husband was from a Shan family who, his uncle, was one of the founding members of the SURA in the late 1960s. And her former husband had been. A SURA soldier who was killed was assassinated by Kun Sa when Kun Sa was gaining power as well. So a lot of this has to do with you know spending time with people and getting to know their personal stories, and also understanding their the diversity of their own social experiences and their cultural experiences that are beyond the political project of Shan state building or Shan nation building. And part of this involved understanding their nostalgia for Burmese popular culture, or you know, what it was like for them, you know growing up in Burma or attending Burmese schools, and then later, you know, joining the insurgency, having their particular branch of the insurgency become obsolete, dealing with the disappointment of Kun Sa's surrender, but then also being stateless subjects of the Thai state, and then having to deal with Thai nationalism. So in many ways, with one foot in each nation state, but actually they have three feet in the sense that they have one foot in in Myanmar, one foot in Shanland, and one foot in Thailand. So it's a very unique personal history, social history, to understanding what does it mean to be a subject, what does it mean to be a citizen, um, and how does this inflect across other social categories, including class and gender, and also what are their hopes for their future, how do they understand Buddhist cosmology, like kind of the complex social selves that anthropology really prides itself on really getting to know through participant observation and long-term embedded fieldwork.
1: And to understand this, you invoke the lens of cultural ecology. What is that? And how do you find this lens to be useful?
0: Yeah, well, cultural ecology, you know, thinking about the, basically the context for a culture and what people do, um, how they survive, how they have um, ritual languages using Edmund Leach's term to talk about cultural ecology, but not thinking about or exclusively using ethnicity to explain. In other words, that here these are among the so-and-so, these people are Shan, this is a Shan village, this is a Shan house, you know, using this predetermined category as a way to explain things, but rather thinking about cultural ecology in the broader sense, you know, how do these people survive? And then how are they flexible? Ways in which, for example, Shan people being fluent in Burmese... One of my closest interlocutors, he had been a former university student at Mandalay University. And when he wanted to talk about politics or talk about books, he preferred to talk in Burmese. And he was a veritable, oh, just like a a jukebox of Burmese popular songs because he was an enthusiast of the guitar. And so my own personal experience, having played in bands, uh, using that music as a way to tap into people's social and complex cultural memories. So part of the cultural ecology, it's this idea that ethnicity or social identity is not a fixed thing on the individual, that our cultural behavior, our language, even our our personalities can change to a great degree depending on what context we're in. Um, There's another concept called situational ethnicity. So How do Shan people strive to blend in as Thai when they're forced to do so um, to join the labor markets in Thailand? And I have in one of the ethnographic stories involves a young Shan woman who, despite speaking Thai fluently, sometimes Thais will criticize her accent or want to put down linguistic borders to say, oh, you're not quite speaking Thai the way you should
1: Hmm. But I guess the interesting thing about this approach is it's rather at odds with the understanding of the Shan themselves, because as you note, ethnicity is understood by the Shan in terms of shared descent. But you remind us that, as you just have now, that ethnicity is socially constructed. So, how does this tension between Shan narratives of ethnicity and these more sophisticated understandings of ethnicity, though that's a loaded judgment help us understand the contextualized and contextualized Shan imaginings of nationhood and of Shan land as a nation of intent?
0: Yeah, there is, because Shan politicians were never able to achieve nation state status in terms of the hegemony that Thailand or Myanmar have to varying degrees and thinking about what does it mean to have a national community or a monopoly of identity, the purpose of history for the Shans, thinking about how themselves as Shans deserve to have their own nation state and to have that political power. But the way it's phrased by Shan politicians today is they don't see it as an ethnically exclusive kind of nation state. And also the other crucial point that I discovered talking to people about their different histories and moving between Mandalay University or seeking a job in Chiang Mai or going down to Bangkok, is that they don't see linguistic facility is different from a political stance. So in other words, being able to sing a Burmese rock song does not make a Shan person not love their own people as Shan. And another interesting aspect about that is the way that Thai ethno-nationalism is at odds with that stance that in some ways they expect if they are fellow Shan, if they are fellow Thai, you know, they should love their nation and not enjoy watching classic movies on YouTube from Burma.
1: <laughs> Finally, I'd like to return to this title of the book, Repossessing Shanland. You present repossession as a concept steeped with hope and anticipation, I quote, a promise of returning a Shan homeland to a Shan people and the vision of a happier place, one that is peaceful and modern. How did you come to this understanding and why is it so key to this nationalist project?
0: Yeah, thank you. The whole idea of why did I choose repossessing as the guiding gerund for the title of the academic book, thinking about what repossession is, I'd first of all, repossession, this idea that if you are getting a car on credit, that if you fail to make payments, it will be repossessed by the auto dealer, or that repossession is when homeowners or building owners evict negligent tenants, that it's this idea that you possess it, it's something that has been had before, but also that repossession is often a violent act without court order. And its terms of rightful ownership, the idea that a so-called rightful owner would take back a property from those who are currently holding it, it's subject to to controversy and contestation. So the rules for the game have changed over the years, especially in in this contestation. So thinking about Shanland, the idea of making a nation state, what comprises Shanland what it meant during colonialism, what Shanland meant in colonialism, what Shanland meant during the Cold War, what Shanland means today, and what people expect for the future has changed with the changing grammars of statecraft across mainland Southeast Asia. So, the idea of thinking about repossessing, what does ownership mean across history in relatively recent history of the upland Southeast Asia? So, this goes back to talking about ideas of race, ethnicity, and citizenship, these different racial ontologies of Burmese, Shan, and Thai ethnic belonging in relation to each other. And also that because you have these ethno-racial histories, you know the idea of the Daosu uh, Kanfa, the great tiger king, this idea that there once was a Shan empire, it gives historical grounding to the political present, but also to be able to anticipate that future. That if Shanland has all of the important accoutrements of a modern nation state, and this also includes you know Buddhist ritual, this includes schools teaching the Shan language. Again, having a full curriculum in the Shan language means that they can have a bureaucratic print language that's distinct from its neighbors. So again, seeing that as an important marker of ethnic identity and nationhood, but because they also make use of, for example, Shan rock songs and have these markers of distinction, but ones that are in an intrinsically modern language and modern format, it's not just about having that independent Shan land to look forward to in the future, but that independent future Shan land is one that will be recognized by the international community as well. And just for something to end on, when I was visiting one of the insurgent camps at Lai Thai Lang of the Shan State Army, this Shan monk was in the truck with the group that I was going with. And he said to me, Jane, when Shanland gets independence, we'll issue you a Shan passport. I was really tickled at this idea that. He's seeing that, you know, if you're going to have a modern sovereign nation state, that means your modern sovereign nation state not only has the sovereignty to issue passports to its citizens, but also that's a passport that you would be able to use in the international arena as well. And having a passport anticipates that recognition by the international other.
1: Well, Jane, it's been a fascinating conversation about a fascinating book But just before we wrap up, could you tell me a little about what you're working on currently?
0: Oh, gosh, I have a few different projects. Uh, I love a good digression, but there's a book project right now. It's called Silver Screens and Golden Dreams, A Social History of Burmese Cinema. So this is kind of the backstory to the popular culture consumption that I first started to learn about in Shanland, that people were very nostalgic for the black and white films that they used to see at the market open air cinemas in Shan villages. So it's the Burmese cinema from 1920 to 1980. And I've also been carrying out ethnographic research amongst airport workers and airline workers. And I've already published a few articles. So airlines and Burmese film.
1: Well, as someone who loves a good divergence myself, I totally approve Jane Ferguson, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss repossessing Shanland: Myanmar, Thailand, and a nation-state deferred. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. I look forward to joining you again soon for another conversation.